Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and I recently visited my guest in this programme, novelist Ian Pears, at his home in North Oxford. Malcolm Gladwell has called Ian the finest pure storyteller working in popular fiction. And it's not hard to see why, from his list of best-selling books, which includes an instance of The Finger Post and The Dream of Scipio. In his new novel, Arcadia, Ian takes his intricately plotted, richly imagined fiction a stage farther than ever before, and presents his reader with choices. Not just whether to read the print version of the novel or the e-book, but whether to plunge into the app, where the reader determines his or her own course through the story, switching between viewpoints and worlds. In a novel much concerned with the nature of time and causation, and the possibility of other universes, one character says, The central point is that while all variants of the universe exist in latent form, only one is actualised. Say that reality is a piece of string on a flat surface, birth at one end, death at the other. Now is any point between the two. The piece of string can, in theory, move anywhere on the surface, but can only be in one place at a time. Now if you push it at one place, the string on both sides of your finger will change positions a little. In temporal terms, both before and after will adjust. In Arcadia, the reader is given the opportunity to push that metaphorical string. Pears imagines the interpenetration of three worlds and characters from them, 1960s Oxford, the mythical world of Antowold, a sort of riposte to Tolkien and C.S. Lewis dreamt up by one of their Oxford contemporaries, and a future semi-dystopia where time travel has become a real possibility. When we met, I remarked to Ian that I often began interviews with novelists by asking them about the genesis of their books. In his case, I imagined that genesis was far from simple. No, what I had was in all my past books I've had I've experimented with quite complex structures Fingerpost was the same story told four times from different perspectives and then The Dream of Scipio was three stories separated by long distances but interleaved two or three pages at a time and for this one I wanted to do something very much more complicated I mean there are ten stories interleaved rather than four or three and I couldn't think of a way of structuring it conventionally which wouldn't annoy nearly everybody and lose my audience entirely so I ended up thinking well maybe you could do it like this so the idea of the app came along it was a solution to a problem which I had so I got involved in it and the, the problem you say you had a problem that you had but does that stem from the fact that you want to challenge yourself when you're when you're creating a, a story that you want to to do things which are, which are complex and, and, and multi-leveled and multi-dimensional. It's always been this business of trying to see things from different points of view and trying to come up with something where you could see things simultaneously from several points of view, which I've often played around with. It seems to be something that uh, gets me excited <laughs> for various reasons. So it, it's because of that primarily rather than, than anything else. I mean, I, I do quite like elaborate structures and complex structures in my books but simply because it um it's like doing a very very complex jigsaw puzzle uh, where you design the puzzle yourself and also have to solve it and that's that's quite a lot of the pleasure i get out of writing the things
So if we, if we could see your, your working methods, what, I mean, would we see vast sheets of paper with complex diagrams and timelines? How do you actually begin to, to fashion the jigsaw puzzle? No, I don't do that because I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless at it. I've never been. I mean, some people do sort of settle down and write a very detailed map of their book before they get going. And I tried that once and it was a disaster because I, can't, I just can't do it. So I just make it up as I go along. I rewrite it incessantly. For this thing, it was so complex because oh, I had to have a special piece of software written for me so that I could write it on the computer where you couldn't write a piece of text and then join it up to other pieces of text and then move it around the screen and to make sure it's in the right place and make the relationships between the various boxes, which was was very, very satisfying. But even then, I had to rewrite and rewrite. I mean, the, this, this piece of software recorded every time I rewrote each box, and I think one box came out as 78 rewrites. <laughs> well, I saw um, you quoted in an article in The Guardian in 2013 about non-linear narratives and, and, and also using technology and you said I don't want to be cautious anymore and having read the book I think well and how yes you definitely just tested that to, to the extreme well I mean you do get to the point don't you because we're especially I'm sure doing if you're a you know professional writer where you are trying to sort of make a career and a reputation and a, even a living out of writing these things then there's a temptation to uh, try and give people what you think they want and what will enhance your reputation and all the rest of it but you know I'm no spring chicken anymore and, and I got to the point where what's the point you know I mean I might as well just throw caution to the winds and do something which excites me and thoroughly I mean I, mean, I what I was trying to do was recreate the excitement I felt when I wrote Fingerpost which was very very different to anything I'd ever done before I didn't think it would ever get published it was very very hard to write it was the most thrilling moment of my career as a writer because it was I had no obligations, I had no feeling that, oh, I'd better do it like this because otherwise I might not get a publisher because I didn't expect to get one. So with this, I was trying to get back to that where I felt utterly unconstrained by any practicalities whatsoever. So how would you describe the relationship between the printed version of the book, which I've got on my knee here, and the app, which you've just been showing me on your iPad? Well, the iPad version was written first. That was the, the whole structure and the nature of the story came out of the, the iPad version. And then I settled down and took the various elements of that and rewrote and restructured it into a novel. But the iPad version is longer, it's 60,000 words longer. It's designed so you don't have to read it all. You can read as much or as little as you want, really. Whereas the novel is, you get what I give you, effectively. You know, you, if you start on page one, if you want to get through it, you take the route I say. So it's, it's the, the novel version is, in fact, one choice, one, one way of reading it, my choice, if you like. Of, of reading it, which could be duplicated in the app, but not necessarily. And from what you've just shown me on the screen, the metaphor, which is also prominent in the book, of a piece of string laid on a flat surface, which can have an infinite number of different positions and, and trajectories, is also the governing, the structuring idea behind the app. Can you say what, what, the, what the, the significance of, of that image? Well, that came out of a 
quite speculative article I read, I think, I can't remember whether it was Scientific American or New Science, one of those magazines several years ago, which suggested that an awful lot of the problems in physics would be solved if you did away with time. If you assume time didn't exist, then this man said that everything became a lot easier to understand. So I began to think, what would you do if you had a novel where, effectively, that's what happened? And what happens there is that, of course, you get rid of causality, because cause and effect, effect always comes after cause in time. Um, if you get rid of that time, then effect and cause become the same thing and mutually dependent on each other. So I created these three worlds where what happens in them depends on what would be considered the future and what would be considered the past, and the past can affect the future just as much as the future can affect the past. And that means that nothing is particularly fixed, so that any event could potentially change on this piece of string could move and it's the same with the app you can move walk down it but you can change the shape of the string which you're following because you sooner or later you have to go in a line from top to bottom but you can take any particular route in order to get from top to bottom the notion of the story and storytelling is also foregrounded it's also very important not just structurally but but as a theme in the book inquiring into the, the nature of stories, the role of stories in, in cultures, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's not, I mean, that's not particularly new or, or interesting because an awful lot of novels talk about the business of writing novels. And then to a certain extent, I was quite reluctant to do that because it's something often a bit, something a bit navel-gazing about that. But you, you, know, you take it a lot further than just wondering about how to write a novel. You're also, you also have, you, you, you're a sort of mythical society is one in which storytelling is very important, very highly regarded, but also the, the repository of, of knowledge and, and authority. Yes, and also it stops people. It contains knowledge, but it restrains freedom. And it's one of the aspects of the book which was quite interesting. And it wasn't, it wasn't something which, that was something that developed on its own. I mean, it wasn't something that uh, I was thinking, ooh, this is what I'd like to write about. I mean, quite a lot of the themes and quite a lot of the characters just turn up on their own without me really consciously thinking about them too much which again is how the my books always write themselves they're just a sort of logical sequence or sort of reasonable development of something that i write more or less at random and so the whole story comes out of that and to a certain extent i put that into the book because that's what happens in the book as well now, it, it's, it's a novel of many, many things, which I'm sure we, we can't do more than, than touch on. But one of the, th the types of novels is it's an Oxford novel, it seemed to me. We're, here we are sitting, or one aspect of it is an Oxford um, novel. We're sitting in North Oxford and some of the geography and places, and, and also a lot of it takes place in 1960. And quite quickly, when I started reading the book, I wrote down the word Inklings, because there's, there's a pub where a number of middle-aged men go of a Saturday afternoon to, to talk and to tell stories. And that seemed to me something that must have been one of the, the seeds that, from which um, the, the novel sprang. Oh, yes. I mean, I mean that's, that's, yes, because one of the themes is about how this rather boring, dull man has this very rich imagination that was part of this sort of bizarre scene in oxford where you get people like tolkien and c.s lewis who have had very very dull lives for the most part and they compensated by this extraordinary imagination you could sort of have little reflections on the peculiarities of english culture if you use that but it was 
also because I wanted to, for the first time ever, in, 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 uh, develop a sort of fantastical element into it, which was not something, again, not something that I intended to do, but came out of the, the way the book developed. And so tagging it on to particularly C.S. Lewis and having this man write it, trying to do something which was in opposition to C.S. Lewis, taking out the religion, doing away with the magic, but constructing an idealised society which was almost C.S. Lewis-like, but without the theological or the magical overtones, which then is practical for one of the other characters to take and use, was quite a useful way of getting the story going. I liked the way you described the way in which Lytton's he, he's a he's a middle-aged don his studies and recollections reorganize themselves in his mind over time and i thought that was quite an interesting way of seeing how the imagination probably works and possibly your imagination from the way that you've described how characters turn up that there, there is this culture this reading this background but there are sort of things going on there are combinations happening and things being generated sub- subconsciously i guess yes i mean it certainly is the case in my case i mean i i, I had no real imaginative skill I think I mean I just had allow things to turn up and nearly all the books that I've done all the ones that I've been particularly pleased with stuff has just turned up I mean, with with fingerbows particularly I was within six weeks of finishing it and I had not the faintest idea how I was going to finish it or what it was about and then it just suddenly appeared rather late in that case it was pretty much the same with this one nearly all of the characters most of the main characters I had no idea we're going to be there. I mean, I started off with Lytton, and I started off with his alter ego in Antebold, and everybody else just grew around it. You know, it's it's not something that... I, I, I see the only way that works for me. I love the correspondences, the, the subtle correspondences that are sort of embedded in, in Antebold between Lytton's... Oxford life and his his reading and and things which which pop up even things like music for example so you've got to imagine what music will sound like in this other world and there are elements of of the jazz that he's listening to but completely transformed and given given different meaning and values and I, I, I thought that was very interesting when when we switch worlds characters often have trouble you know characters who move between them have trouble working out things like rules and etiquette and behaviour and values and just what things mean. Yes, I mean, one of the areas where the the app, I think, is better than the novel is that in the app you get buried underneath it, you get Lytton's notebooks, where he's sort of musing about how a society such as the one he wants to create would be organised, how they grow the food, how would they make sure that power doesn't become centralised and authoritarian, how does he balance countryside towns and the various groupings in society, so each one checks the others. And then he, I have these sections where he talks about the music and how he imagines the music might develop and what its function in society might be, which was all quite fun. I mean, I would have liked to have put more of that into the novel, but it that certainly would have been self-indulgent because it did slow it would have slowed the narrative down enormously and so I didn't allow myself to put it in. We've talked a little bit about Oxford in the 1960s and Lytton's creation, Antewold, but the, the third panel in the triptych is a future dystopia. Can you introduce that world and, and say how that 
took shape in your imagination in a way that catalyzes, that makes possible all the other aspects of the story. Well, nearly all of the imaginative constructs around it come from, well, at one level, it's stuff that I've read, of course, and at another level, it's, it's the material that Lytton, the character, has read. And he is a an educated, intellectual, fairly conservative Englishman of the 1960s who is seeing the world change around him, is worried about World War Three breaking out in any moment and doesn't particularly like any of it. So he sees that the way society is developing, and particularly through one of his colleagues who is a sort of a would-be technocrat, and part of him imagines the horrors of what he thinks the world might turn into, and his response is to imagine a better world, a simpler world, a gentler world, where uh, science and technology don't take over. Because this was the period, which I remember, where the book, that book called The Rise of the Meritocracy, which coined the term meritocracy, was produced. So there were other people who were sort of thinking along the same lines, that this notion of merit or ability was going to take over the world and sort of we were going to get ruled by technocrats. And so that dystopian world, which is not particularly dystopian, I mean, it's fully functional. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, capitalism still seems to be going going strong. And, um, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it says he's, he says it's a, he's taken the worst excesses of communism and the worst excesses of capitalism and fused them together into a horrible functional whole. And so that acts as a juxtaposition with the uh, imaginative construct of, of Anterwald. But it's the future strain which binds the stories together. Because on the island of Mull in Scotland, there is a research institute which is... Well, tell, tell me about Angela Meerson's project. Um, she's, a, she's, she's a psychomathematician, so perhaps you should say what psychomathematicians of the future will, will do and what she's engaged on. The idea of psychomathematics was something I developed to avoid having to get into the excesses of mathematics and physics, which otherwise I would have had to explain. It's the idea that you could use, if you could harness the brain in a particular way, you could turbocharge mathematical intuition and function a lot better than computers ever could. The idea being that you know Einstein sort of came up with the idea of relativity long before he had figured out the maths to prove it. The maths was merely proving what he already felt to be true. So if you could develop the feelings, then you could make much faster leaps because you could catapult ahead to the answer and then have to do the donkey work of actually you know, working it out. So she develops this this machine to test the idea of parallel universes, which is becoming quite current at the moment. That you know there are there are many realities out there, and she begins to wonder whether, in fact, there aren't many realities. There's only one, and lots of potential realities. And the book is the uh, consequence of her experiments to see what exactly happens. Did you have to do a great deal of, of background reading writing this book, or were you like lit and kind of drawing thing, drawing on things which were already maturing and macerating in your in your brain? No, this one required very little because uh, most of it is just made up, and the only truly historical bit is the nineteen sixties bit, and their history has only a relatively small role to play. Because my past books have all been historical novels. The last three or four have been historical novels and they need an awful lot of work to get get it just right. But one of the things that 
prompted me to do this was it struck me that if you write a historical novel, you have to have, you know, try and get your the society in which the story takes place just right, so that it convinces readers that you really are writing about that you've got Tudor England or Victorian London or wherever you've cited it. But in a fantasy novel, of course, you can't do that. But on the other hand, your citing of the story has to be every bit as convincing. If you're imagining a society, it has to be imagined strongly enough so people can go into it and think of it as a real place, so that people's emotions, people's responses, what makes people do things is convincing. So, I mean, a fantasy novel is just a historical novel without facts. But they, the way they're constructed and the way you have to write them, is in, apart from that, is, is, that, is ex- exactly the same. So I thought with, with I would have a go at essentially writing a historical novel without the history. And it ended up in this sort of slightly fantastical way. And the, f- the fact that the characters are so often fish out of water in alien environments gives you opportunity for quite sly comedy, doesn't it, at times? Well, it does, and it's also very, very useful. Um, I mean, I, I, it's, that was a device that I used in Fingerpost, particularly. The, you know, Fingerpost was set in seventies, mid-70th century England, and there you have the business of trying to introduce to the reader how 17th century England worked without running the risk of having to stop to explain to the reader how it worked. I mean, you've got to try and explain it through the story. And the best way of doing that is having a foreigner come who knows nothing and can't understand what's going on and has to find out and con- has to be constantly asking questions. And a couple of the characters in Arcadia function in the same way. I mean, they're the ones who have to be asking questions, which keeps the story going but also sort of slips the necessary information to the reader so that they can orient themselves and figure out what's going on. When readers read a conventional narrative I suppose they can all agree they've more or less read the the same book but I suppose part of the point is that no two readers necessarily will ever read this book in in the same or take the same path through through the book so in a way to say I've read Arcadia may become an, an, an impossibility is that is that something that sort of intrigues you? Yes, I mean, it's, it's, there's no reason why people couldn't... I mean, the whole idea was to allow people to read in the way that suited them. And not many people have read it yet, but the people who have do all choose different ways of doing it. I mean, some people go, start with one story, read to the end, start with the next story, read to the end. Some people go down one story and then use the text section to just more or less move at random. And other people go back to the map and deliberately hop from place to place. I mean, this was something that I thought of by watching my children read, because they're 16, 17, 18, and they have learnt to read in a very, very different way to us. I mean, we, people of my age, uh, read and, but, and can concentrate very hard, but on one thing at a time. So we can lose ourselves in a book for several hours and we can get through 200 pages without stopping. And we think of that as normal. They don't, and they will read four or five things simultaneously, ten pages at a time, and can extract the information, remember the information, and stitch it together in ways that suits them. So this offers them the opportunity of doing that, if that's what they want to do. But at the same time, if you're more like me, you will be able to read it in a more conventional fashion as well. 
Going back to the article from The Guardian I quoted earlier, you said very resolutely that you that you didn't see a sort of gamification element. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't the direction of travel as you saw it, even though the reader has choices to make about what path to follow. But segueing into some kind of game was very definitely not something that you wanted to do. No, I, I really didn't. Cause I, I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller, and I believe that I'm a storyteller because I'm quite good at it. And so I want the story to be mine. And I don't see how you can build in much choice about what happens without creating something which is unbalanced or without having to reduce the characters to the point that they are simply cardboard cutouts. And you can't have any depth in character if they can murder someone or not murder someone because otherwise you can't possibly understand what they're doing because there are reasons why people murder somebody or not somebody. And if you can do both, then you can't have those reasons. I was a bit, for example, is King Lear. You know, somebody in the 18th century rewrote King Lear so that Cordelia comes around at the end. King Lear and Cordelia go off and live happily ever after. But doing that invalidates the whole of the rest of the play because... It just doesn't fit. So the only way you could have that as an option would be to rewrite the previous five acts to make that fit. And that would require an awful lot of redundancy in the book, which I wasn't prepared to prepared to do. So what I offer is a choice of structure. I mean, it makes a difference. I think it makes a big difference which characters you come across first in a book, because they tend to be the ones you identify with. So merely doing that will change the book very, very dramatically. If you come across a certain scene from the point of view of one character, it will mean one thing. If you come across it from the point of view of the other character in the scene, it will mean something else. And at various stages, you can approach it from six different routes, and the scene will mean a different thing every time. That's pretty much as far as I was prepared to go. Do you feel you have pushed this approach as far as you can take it now? Or do you think there are there are yet other multiple ways of presenting narrative without taking them towards gaming? Oh, I'm sure there are, and I'm sure I can't think of them. Things like iPads have only been around for five, six years, and so they're in their infancy. My favourite comparison is with the early days of moving pictures, where people would just plonker. I mean, <laughs> Plonker, plonker a camera in front of a, 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 a theatre or, yeah. or something and, yeah. and, and film, and film, and film a play. And then about, I mean, it did take quite some time, sort of 15 years, 20 years before people thought, well, we could start sort of cutting from different cameras and having close-ups and, and all the rest of it. And then you got an entirely new art form coming out of it. We're still at the stage, I think, of plonking the camera in front of the theatre and turning the handle so what my children's generation or what their children's will come up with is uh, likely to be very very different I think but it's not something that I will I mean the idea of how this book will whether this book will be successful I mean the greatest success really would be somebody coming along saying I could do better than that and going off and doing it that would have been an achievement but uh, we shall see I was talking to Ian Pears about Arcadia, which is published in hardback as an e-book and as an app this September. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll also find a short video 
in which Ian talks further about the novel. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.